following program may contain language that is explicit. And by explicit, I mean implicitly naughty words. It's Wednesday, November 25th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. This is a time for joy and reflection. And as I like to look at it, for the giving of thanks. And that is why I celebrate kudos granting. Some call it Thanksgiving. President Trump phoned into a kind of ginned-up Republican-only hearing about ballots in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, in an attempt to dispute the election. Gettysburg, a fine locale for turning back illiberal threats to the republic. I'm also thankful, or give kudos, to the fact that every Biden appointee is a veritable symphony of competence and life experience compared to the kazoo-huffing members of the Trump cabinet. Anthony Blinken, multilingual, deeply experienced coalition builder. Trump's first secretary of state, oil man. And he was much better than the next guy. Biden ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, multiple foreign postings, served as ambassador to Liberia, appointed by the Bush administration. Trump tried to find the UN ambassador from Fox News. That didn't work. She was rejected. He went for one who reportedly has gold-level status as a frequent guest of the Trump hotels. Now, Linda Thomas-Greenfield is African-American. Right now, Trump's ambassadors to Africa include a grand total of three African-Americans. There are 54 countries in Africa, by the way. Not everyone gets a full ambassador. But of Trump's first 120 ambassadorial assignments, 109 went to white people. And by people, I mean something like 78% men. So we look forward, but we also look back. Today's remembrance of things Trump. Six months into the Trump presidency, Donald Trump accepted an invitation to speak at the Boy Scout Jamboree. Wonder why he said yes? He told us why. Did President Obama ever come to a jamboree? He also said this. You know, I go to Washington and I see all these politicians and I see the swamp and it's not a good place. In fact, today I said we ought to change it from the word swamp to the word cesspool, or perhaps to the word sewer. And this... Do you remember that incredible night with the maps? And the Republicans are red, and the Democrats are blue, and that map was so red, it was unbelievable, and they didn't know what to say. And this... And hopefully, he's going to get the votes tomorrow to start our path toward killing this horrible thing known as Obamacare. At an event that specifically forbade politicizing issues. After Boy Scout parents complained, the chief scout executive issued a public apology for the, quote, political rhetoric that was inserted into the jamboree. Trump denied this was the case and went on to claim to the Wall Street Journal that the head of the Boy Scouts had called him to say it was, quote, the greatest speech that was ever made to them. He also claimed there was a standing ovation from the time I walked out to the time I left and for five minutes after I had already gone. The Boy Scouts, when asked to clarify... If the head of the organization called to say the speech was great, said they were not aware of such a phone call. The scout oath is, on my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the scout law to help people at all times to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. Past presidents John F. Kennedy, LBJ, Gerald Ford, Eagle Scout, Jimmy Carter, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton were either Cub Scouts or Boy Scouts or Scout leaders. Donald Trump had no affiliation with the Boy Scouts before speaking to them in 2017. 
on the show today. It's an Antan twig, which if you're not familiar, is a chance to correct mistakes and to clarify our true feelings about theories concerning Hugo Chavez's posthumous election interference efforts. But first, WeWork was the work-sharing locale that was valued as high as $45 billion until a careful or rather just a cursory vetting of the books realized it was a business based on hype hope and the Kabbalahistic fantasies of founder Adam Newman. Newman, a six-foot-five Israeli emigre, knew how to ensorcel a room full of investors, but eventually the dream was revealed to be built on the wispiest of clouds. I speak with Reeves Weidman, who wrote the book on the debacle. I really want to find out, actually, how Newman tricked funders, but how investors and the culture of investing, to some extent, demands such flights of fancy. Billion-dollar loser, the epic rise and spectacular fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. Adam Newman was the messianic impresario behind WeWork. And his story is a cautionary tale, of course, but it's also really illustrative of where we are now in terms of the economy and seeking fortune at the expense of perhaps sanity. The name of the book is Billion Dollar Loser, The Epic Rise and Spectacular Fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. It's written by Reeves Weidman, who joins me now. Reeves, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Mike. So I am interested not so much, I mean, I was interested, but for the purposes of this conversation, the aspects that went into Adam Newman's psychological makeup, they're interesting. The backstory is interesting. But what I'm really most fascinated with is what this says about where we are as an economy and what we demand from our entrepreneurs. So in one sentence, knowing that that's where we're going to go, tell me everything that the audience needs to know about who Adam Newman is when he starts making proclamations that the financial world starts greeting with, oh yeah, that's worth a couple billion dollars. (laughs) Uh, One one sentence is hard, but Adam Newman founded an office space leasing company that he started describing as a physical social network in sort of the vein of, of every startup that aspired to be that in the 2010s and from there he got money from all kinds of people who were who were hoping that in some way he could actually turn a kind of boring real estate business into one of these giant sort of tech or tech adjacent unicorns and that was kind of the basic pitch Okay, so one aspect of that is unicorns. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, the financial world or people who fund projects wouldn't just like unicorns and aren't hoping for unicorns. They kind of insist on unicorns, and Newman wasn't against that, but he certainly epitomizes the idea of, well, if you have a million-dollar idea, there's no reason why it can't be a billion-dollar idea. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a sort of famous story from around this same era when when a lot of these companies were coming up, which was basically in the wake of the financial crisis. And there's a story about Airbnb that in their one of their early pitch decks uh, that they were putting together, they were a part of Y Combinator, this sort of famous incubator in Silicon Valley. I may butcher these numbers a little bit, but they had projected that they would one day have revenue of $30 million dollars. And one of the sort of advisors they were working with said, change it to a B, change it to 30 billion. And, and said that investors want Bs, baby, was the, the sort of line. And, and that, that was kind of the ethos that from the venture capital world in particular, what people wanted 
they were not looking to fund nice, lightly profitable businesses, stable businesses. They wanted to fund these companies that were suddenly capable of growing very quickly and all over the world into these sort of giant behemoths. And if that meant that you funded 10 or 20 of them and 19 of those 20 failed and, and one became the next Airbnb or WeWork for a while or, or Facebook or Uber or whatever it is, that more than makes up for your your losses everywhere else. And that, that was essentially the business model. Right, because there are all these companies like Uber, like WeWork, like maybe Airbnb, which is just having its version of an IPO, right. that aren't just pitched as successful or even truly transformative companies. They're pitched as, you know, world reshaping and multi-billion dollar ideas. And so far, the market, not with WeWork, but with the other ones, has kind of agreed with and propelled the fantasy. Yeah. And and the only fact check I would have there is that WeWork, at least in in some private ways, was pitching itself as a trillion dollar company. Yeah, Um, of course. Why why not? (laughs) Yeah. And eventually, at at a certain point, you have to keep sort of elevating your sort of expectations. And and so, you know, that was the goal. Um, it was what was kind of being celebrated both by investors and, and culturally in some ways. I mean, you know, the physical social network that Adam Newman was talking about came in the wake of the movie, The Social Network. And this was kind of this era of these sort of rock star startup founders um, in the wake of, of Steve Jobs' death, in the wake of Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg. And, and that's who Adam Newman wanted to be, and that is kind of what everyone was was pushing him and many other entrepreneurs to become. Yeah. And the confounding thing, if you want to make a hard line and say, look, it's all a fantasy. No one's going to make hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, doing blank, releasing office spaces. Well, someone did it selling books. Yeah. He, he didn't just keep with books. And someone did it, whatever the hell you want to say Facebook does, putting people in touch with each other with their high school friends they don't really like. There are actual examples of ideas yeah. That do they sound so much crazier than the WeWork idea? Do they really? Yeah, I think, you know, one one way that I think about some of those things is the big buzzword for most of the decade was networks and network effects. And the bigger and bigger you get, the more the more successful your business is, the sort of easier it is for you to cut costs um, and all of that. With WeWork's business, that just wasn't the case. Every new space that you opened, yes, WeWork got better at opening it more cheaply and efficiently, but at the end of the day, you're sort of operating in the physical world, not the digital world, and and that is just a much more expensive proposition. And I, I think that's sort of one other thing that we've we've seen from a lot of these companies over the past few years is is there have been attempts to sort of get into the physical world. And and that's been a lot harder. I mean Uber is obviously a huge thing, but the thing that it is hugely successful at is being a taxi service. It's it's not mm-hmm. totally clear that it has achieved the goal that investors want it to achieve, which is to reshape the way people and things move around the world. That is a, is a much grander goal and I think a much more difficult goal than what some of these kind of earlier tech companies were, were setting out to do. If we consider the messianic pomposity and grandosity of Newman, many of the other tech uh, slash real-life billionaires, multi-billionaires, seem to be 
of more substance than Adam Newman was. Is that, is that safe to say? I think there's some truth to that. I mean, Adam was not a buffoon. He was a smart guy. Even people who are very critical of him would say that. There's, there's stories we have in the book of, you know, he, he was very good at like looking at a space and calculating in his head precisely how many desks we work could fit in there, precisely how much money it would make, precisely how much that would increase the company's valuation, and, and then ultimately how much it would increase uh, his own net worth. So he was he was a smart guy. In in many ways, he was a good leader. And, you know, I I think a lot of people want to paint him as kind of a con man. I Mm -hmm. think there's a difference between being a good con man and a good salesman. And and it's a fine line. But but ultimately, what Adam was was trying to do was pitch a vision of something that that I think he believed in. I, I don't think it was something where he was felt like he was trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. Where it came apart was that actually delivering on on the vision was much more difficult. And of course, you know, sort of to your point, he, unlike most of these other sort of the big entrepreneurs of our day who who came from from tech backgrounds, you know, Elon Musk was an engineer um, before he he became sort of the, whatever he is now. Um, and so, so I think that that is a difference. But I I think Adam certainly had skills that that he does share with some of those people, which is kind of their their ambition. I mean, ambition is a is a is a skill set for anyone trying to do something like this. Right. If it was Theranos, essentially based on a lie, based on a grift, based on would it be great if this technology exists? Let's just pretend it does. That goes as far back as uh, the P.T. Barnum and, and before. We work, if it had just a little less, I don't know, ambition, it would have been worth yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars. He yeah. had a generally good idea. Like if he were to cash out at WeWork or value it at its logical value, how much do you think it would be worth or he could have made? Billions of dollars. Um, wow. It, it, might be, it might be single digits. It might eke into the double digits. And, and that's sort of, I, I think, one of the lessons of this story is, is yes, like WeWork tapped into something. People liked these offices. It was not Theranos where the blood testing machine never worked. The, the offices were there. You could see them. People enjoyed, you know, people had complaints about them the way they had, had complaints about, about any office. But but by and large, people liked the offices. And there's a version of, of WeWork that tries to kind of stabilize and becomes a very profitable global company that stands for a better kind of office experience. And that's it. And I think where things did get off the rails for WeWork were in two ways. One, just the ambition to grow as fast as they did was, I think, something that pushed the company beyond what it was capable of. And then the ambition to push into so many different things, to get into apartment living, um, to open a gym, to open an elementary school, to invest in a wave pool company. And then the way that Adam started talking about all of these things eventually as under the banner of elevating the world's consciousness, sort of separated the company from the reality of what it was actually good at. And if there is a lesson I think that future entrepreneurs can take, it's it's that, that just because you're good at one thing doesn't mean that suddenly you're going to be good at everything and that the best business decision for you might be to just focus on doing the thing that you're really good at. I know, except that the guys they look up to, what if Jeff Bezos took that lesson and stopped at books or stopped at just retail, stopped at a store? And what if what if uh, Google, uh, Sergey and Larry took that lesson too? I mean, it's easy to say, know what your core competency is and stick to that. Only the greats, the people who right. these guys we're talking about are putting on the Mount Rushmore, either had a better understanding of what their core competency was or 
just pushed past it and found more competencies. Yeah, and, and I haven't done a full case study of all, all these all these different companies. But if you look at, at Amazon, to take one example, you know, Jeff Bezos wasn't making movies in year three. You know, that was year right, 15 right. or 20 or whatever but he wasn't it was. getting. But I also think he wasn't getting offered billions. It's kind of a tough thing where you have this company you really did breathe into life through your own hustle and your own storytelling ability, a company that should be worth hundreds of millions, if not, as you say, billions. But the flaw is instead of low billions, you go for the high billions. Right. I've never been in that situation. I don't know how I'd react. <laughs> well, and, and, and the thing that I left out is sort of the important moment in, in WeWork's history that we haven't talked about yet is, is SoftBank's arrival. And, and that happened mm-hmm. in, in 2017. WeWork at that point was, was running out of money. Um, you know, the business was still going well, but they were running out of places to look for investment to continue growing. It looked like they were maybe going to go public and they were looking into all these different ways that they might kind of, you know, moderate the growth of, of the business and start to become more stable. Then Masayoshi-san shows up at WeWork headquarters and offers Adam Newman $4.4 billion and says, be crazier, grow faster than than you ever could because I want you to become this giant world-spanning thing. And, and it, you know, a lot of WeWork employees would look back at that moment and say, if only that hadn't happened, it wouldn't have enabled some of the worst impulses that Adam had, that the company had. But in the same breath, they will also admit that they have never been in a position to turn down $4 billion and no one would really begrudge Adam. No one begrudges Adam for doing that. So it is a sort of tricky thing, but I, I, I think it that that is sort of the related lesson is, is there were so many of these companies that were just getting tons and tons of investment. This is, again, a number I'm, I'm not totally sure of, but, but Amazon, Jeff Bezos took one round of venture capital investment. WeWork at, at a certain point was on, on seven or eight rounds before trying to go public. So the, just the amount of money that private companies have been able to raise over, over the past decade, really, has just enabled people to sort of try crazy things that, that ultimately don't really make a whole lot of sense. Right. And you've got to start blaming whoever was the person who um, funded his yep. fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth rounds or whoever made those decisions. They made worse decisions than Adam probably did. Yeah, certainly at a minimum, they, they enabled it. And, and they, you know, there were many very smart business people who at, at various points could have said, you know, Adam, this, this, uh, maybe this isn't a good idea. And, and in some ways they did, but very rarely did they actually put their foot down and 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 try to stop anything because it kept working for a while and and I think you know I I do think there there's been sort of uh, we are only going to begin reckoning with all of these companies that burned all this money to try to disrupt various industries had the appearance of of growing very very quickly but we're not charging what they need to charge to actually become profitable companies. And that that goes for WeWork, that goes for all of the ride-sharing companies, the delivery apps that we all depend on now. All of these companies are going to have to figure out how to operate without just a fire hose of, of venture capital funding them. So there's another aspect to Adam's story, and you as the person who wrote it has to have uh, thought about this a lot. And it's the role of narrative. Yuval Harari writes about this, that, you know, human beings are so good at imagining stories, and maybe it's too good. Because as I see it, you can interpret the Adam Newman story as a guy who really understood how to tell a story and really understood how to weave a narrative. And you know what? It wasn't bullshit. It was true. And that reinforced the power of the narrative. It just wasn't true at 
quite the levels he pretended it was. As a writer and someone who expresses these ideas through narrative and through words, is it very hard to translate that when the the fundamental flaw is just a numbers flaw and not a story flaw? The idea that that WeWork was you know, that Adam had come from a kibbutz and it had made him believe in community. And so had his co-founder Miguel. And they both together wanted to create these more sort of communal workspaces. There was truth to that. I think as much as the numbers being disconnected from reality, what became an issue was the fact that the narrative became disconnected from reality. Once WeWork switched from Make a life, not a living. That's something you can wrap your head around. And and building mm-hmm. a better day at work, that's something we all want and was very clearly connected to what they were doing. When the mission statement at the beginning of 2019 changed to elevating the world's consciousness, even people <laughs> who believed in the company were like, what does that mean? And And suddenly it created all these problems, I think for WeWork just in how it presented itself. And and the numbers were a huge issue, but I do think a big part of the company's demise, and, and the company still exists, but the demise of the IPO was that they lost the narrative and that they couldn't connect what they were saying publicly to what they actually did and the, and the way they made money. So I think there is a lesson, again, for entrepreneurs of like, you have to make sure that whatever story you're telling connects with what you're actually doing, because eventually people are going to see through any kind of BS. Right. Here's how I would interpret it, which is that it is actually about numbers because at a number of a billion dollars, make a life, not a living, that's a billion dollar idea. Sure. But if you're forced to have a 10 billion or 20 or 35 billion dollar idea, that's a bunch of one syllable words that ends in a two syllable <laughs> word. You need to go with elevating the world's consciousness. You know, you need to become a cult at that, and a cult leader at that point. Yeah, you and, do. And, one's, and what's driving what? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think they're, they're hand in hand. I mean, I think if you look at the early 2019, at that point, we were brought in that new mission statement. They also suddenly had a $47 billion valuation, which was never really real. You know, you could do the math in various ways, and that's the way Adam Newman wanted to publicly present the math. And and I think that put a target on its back. So, so you had this situation, yes, where to meet that valuation, you had to bump up the the expectations for what the company actually did. And it was also this point where they sort of became the we company, not we work. And we, they had we grow and we live. And there was this sense of we're going to be continuing to expand into all these different things. The number feeds that. And then, you know, on the way down, both having that giant number and this outsized valuation, when you can't actually deliver on it, it's going to hurt you. I heard an interview where, you know, you said that Adam hasn't gotten in touch with you, though many of his former employees have been quite gleeful about the revelations. But for someone who is supposed to be um, that powerful, Was he surprisingly unsavvy with you or others like you, other people who were in charge of telling his story? The trouble is that unlike the carefree days early on when when he was spinning the narrative of WeWork is now uh, the lawyers are involved. And he is in this situation where his billion dollar payout, which he got theoretically upon leaving WeWork last fall, he has not received it. And and SoftBank, which was going to fund that, has, has in fact sort of reneged on it for a variety of reasons. There are some court hearings coming up on that. And I, I think for that reason, among others, he he's chosen to stay quiet. But I do think eventually Adam Newman will get out there and try to 
tell his side of the story and and try to rehabilitate his image because i i think he's still young he's 41 and and i don't think he's going to be someone who wants to just rest on his laurels and and surf his way into retirement billion dollar loser is the name of the book the epic rise and spectacular fall of adam newman and we work reeves weidman is the guy who wrote it thanks reeves thanks for having me And now the spiel. It's an antan twig, our name for recurring bad breath odor not due to illness. No, wait, I might be thinking of this. Simple chronic halitosis, our name for recurring breath odor not due to illness. No, 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 no. So it's not that. An antan twig is a three-week period. It is 150% of a fortnight. But much as a sufferer of simple chronic halitosis might have a loose definition of what represents the zone of comfortable interpersonal space... We here at The Gist define our antan twigs similarly loosely. By not subjecting them to strict scrutiny, we allow for a greater flow of information, but also for mayhem. So it's not been three weeks, closer to three months since the last antan twig. You would think this would have allowed the mistakes to pile up. You'd be right. First of all, I misidentified WABC Radio as owned by Disney. No, not for years. Though they kept the call letters of the network, which is Disney-owned, it was sold to Cumulus, I believe, and then to John Katsimatidis, grocery store magnate. Though if you've ever been inside a Gristidis, magnate is, in fact, a little grand. He owns a bunch of New York City grocery stores, stores where you spin around, you knock a bunch of macaroni and cheese off the shelves. The price of WABC was only about $7 million, which is remarkably low, at least for the place that WABC occupies, in my mind. But as I think about it, it's an outdated notion, as I demonstrated on The Gist, because on WABC, Rudy Giuliani holds court every day. I mean, court possibly holds, what what do we call what Giuliani holds? Asylum? Bin? And what he does there is he spews exactly what he spews in front of the cameras, but on WABC, no one notices. But when there's a visual involved a visual overtaken by the images of streaks of hair dye to distract us, everyone says, wait, what is he saying? That's nutty. So, WABC, a Katsimatidis jam. Jam spill, aisle five. Also, I have a four-part, maybe three-and-a-half-part college correction. It's about McAllister, McMaster, and McCullum. Two separate incidents, actually. So in a spiel about the Trump administration relying on a lightly credentialed, loosely affiliated part-time instructor at McAllister College, I screwed up because he's not at McAllister College. There is no McAllister College in Canada. There's a McAllister College in Minnesota, fine institution. There is also an American Academy McAllister Institute in New York that is the state's top training ground for morticians. That would have been sadly appropriate given the quality of advice that was given. But in truth, I meant McMaster University in Canada. Maybe it was better to mistake McMaster because McMaster quickly disavowed their relationship with Paul Alexander, the COVID and curious assistant professor who alleged that the CDC was trying to hurt President Trump with its recommendations. As for C.J. McCollum, he's a Portland trailblazer. He went to Lehigh and not Lafayette. He donned not the maroon and white of the leopard, but the brown and white of the mountain hawk, formerly the engineer, in between, I think they were just called the Lehigh brown and white for a while. Lafayette, fun fact, a coach at Lafayette invented the huddle, the football huddle. Lehigh, fun fact, a player from Lehigh is actually in the NBA, and he's C.J. McCollum, though somewhat popular daily podcasts have been known to misidentify him as if he went to Lafayette. 
as if he were some huddle inventing Herb McCracken type. He, the Lafayette coach who invented the huddle, Herb McCracken. Now, onto the lobstar of the Antan Twig. An award for a great listener who goes above and beyond, or either one, just beyond is fine. First assistant, let's call them the Vice Lobstar. It's shared by at SuperJewel and at Samuel T22223. Just for snazzy Twitter names. Actually, in a way, yes. So after Donald Trump released a video to demonstrate his post-COVID health, and this video couldn't be completed in one take, and it had an obvious edit at the 1 minute 51 second mark, I tweeted, I'm not going to change my Twitter handle to obvious edit at 151, but if you wanted to, you'd have my respect. Now, remember when I said that the Vice Lobstar was going to at SuperJewel and at Samuel T22223? Well, for a time, I mean, that is their permanent Twitter name, but their Twitter handles for a time, the time being October 7th, they each went by obvious edit at 151. It's quite pleasing to have a Svengali-like hold on a teeming mass of two people, and so they are both sub-lobstars, vice-lobstars, assistant-lobstars. And this is only if the actual lobstar of the Antan Twig cannot fulfill her duties. She is Kathy Foote, who wrote me just yesterday an email about my comments regarding a New York Times columnist's decision to spend Thanksgiving with his family, despite the risks. Mike, am I a bad person? Full stop. No, you are the lobstar. But I'll go on. Mike, am I a bad person for not feeling incredibly guilt-ridden if I can't spend Thanksgiving with my family? Let me explain. I'm a military spouse, Kathy writes. We have been married for 45 years and have four children. My husband has been deployed many times while I stayed home and kept the family humming along. My husband and I have spent many Christmases, Thanksgivings, and New Year's Eves apart. He's been deployed in combat zones. My husband has had to miss dance recitals, first baby steps, spelling bee successes, and failures. That's good. Missing the failures is good. I've gone it alone for parent-teacher conferences, hospital visits, car repairs, orthodontist appointments. I am actually so delighted to be able to Zoom with my children this holiday season, remembering all the holidays in which the only connection was a card in the mail, maybe a delayed package. She continues, families are precious, I get it. It's a gift to be able to be with loved ones under any circumstances, but there can also be a joy in being, quote, together apart. Don't pity military families. It's a lifestyle we have chosen with eyes wide open. Strength, adventure, and resilience develop as we bend to the circumstances we find ourselves in. Please stop freaking out if you can't have Thanksgiving with Uncle Bob. You'll be okay on Friday morning, Kathy Foote. And she ends with just trying to remind people of military families. Well, literally, you reminded me. I hadn't even considered all the people who always go through this and do so without complaint. There are a lot of people for whom the exception is the rule for whom this particular hardship is routine. For Kathy, for the Foots, for anyone military or anyone civilian or civil servant or first responder or last man in or just a guy working at the bodega who sells me the nutmeg half and half or marshmallows we ran out of, thanks for all you do. Only Kathy can be the lobster of the Antan Twig, but you all are heroes of this. Kudos granting. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is producer of The Gist. She's going to spend the holidays, as she always does, watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on TV, noting every time someone calls it a Macy's Day Parade and sending that person an expired gourd parcel post. Very uh, Johnny Carson there. Uh, expired gourd parcel post. Lori Gallaretta helped us this week. She is from California, 
where they have updated Thanksgiving. So now it's no worries gifting. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Montgomery's favorite kudos granting dish is candied yam. Actually candied with kudos, the chocolate covered granola snack that has been since discontinued. The gist. This Thanksgiving, I will once again watch the TV special where a strange thumb-sucking youngster is mocked but ultimately vindicated for his unerring belief in the Great Pumpkin. The Charlie Kirk story. Check local listings. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.